Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Fellas, who here was born for vengeance? I'm, you can't see you. I'm raising I, my hand. Honestly, I really wasn't. I mean, I would love to joke along, but I no, no, not really. No, I'm not in a sewer, uh, unfortunately. I was born for yeah. loving. <laughs> Just you and me then, Jason. I guess we let's get them. We, we can we can destroy this wonderful uh, piece that they've found. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Try Love. It's a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema, Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. Find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema. My name is Jason Daphnis. Uh, you might recognize what is what is the phrase? Oh, I actually did write it down. You might call me Curiosity Personified, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Snowblood, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. You were, you didn't do Cody underscore SB? That would have been pretty funny. Uh, I'm <laughs> Harry Mackin. Um, I'm a writer with a great deal of hatred and disdain for the powers that be. And you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. My name is Aaron. Has anybody else noticed, and you guys noticed, that this film appears to be an inspiration for Kill Bill? If you guys have any thoughts on this, you can, wow. you can reach out to me on Twitter at RB, please. Well, we'll have to get into that for sure. I feel like everything I was going to say is just, I have to rethink the whole movie. I was born for vengeance, and uh, and now I know against whom I need to wreak that vengeance. Uh, it's it's uh, at RB, please. Um, uh, the movie that's playing and that, that we're at uh, the trial and currently and that we're going to be talking about today is uh, playing as part of a series called A Dish Best Served Cold about vengeance and revenge movies at the cinema playing all month this month in June of 2023 timestamp for everybody who goes back and finds the opinions that get us canceled in five six years like episode 900 or so uh check it out when you go to trilon.org and see their programming schedules there's a lot of cool stuff coming up presently parker posey series and this revenge series um check it out there's a lot of good stuff coming up including the double team session i forget exactly what the special is called but there's the jackie chan twin dragons i think it's called and double impact are playing as part of the same short series uh the van damme one good movies um, check it out, trilon.org. Uh, but hey, you're already listening to this, so why not pay attention to the patented Aaron Grossman summary from, that's right, Aaron Grossman himself. It's from me, yes. Uh, folks, we are talking about Lady Snowblood, 1973 film, directed by Toshia Fujita. Uh, the film is an adaptation of the manga series of the same name. Um, it is set in the Meiji period of uh, 19th century uh, Japan. Uh, the film stars Meiko Kaji as uh, Yuki Kashima. Uh, a.k.a. Uh, Lady Snowblood, a woman who is out for vengeance and a whole lot of blood um, as she attempts to track down and kill the people responsible for the rape of her mother and then also the murder of her father and brother. Um, along the way, she meets uh, Ryurei, oh God, I should have pronounced, uh, should have practiced pronouncing that one, uh, Ashio, uh, who is played by Toshio Kurosawa, uh, who is a reporter, kind of journalist, who is interested in uh, telling her life story in the form of a um, kind of purportedly 
uh, but not not really a fictional novel in a newspaper that he writes for. Uh, the film has gone on to uh, be considered kind of a, a classic of Japanese cinema, as, as I kind of joked about earlier. It, it uh, is referenced a lot in Kill Bill and was clearly an inspiration for that and a lot of other uh, films down the line. It also spawned a sequel, uh, most notably spawned like a bunch of media kind of referencing it, but uh, a sequel the next year in 1974 was made called Love Song of Vengeance. Uh, that's what I got. Uh, I'm going to get it right off the bat, guys. I've never seen Kill Bill, either volume of Kill Bill. I have no... Wait, seriously? I, yeah, I have, I have no vector of reference for like, this is where they got the blank from, or this is what Terrence... I Just for clarification, like, I'm not going to not... I'm not going to shut down any conversation points about it. Please talk about the influences. I'm just not going to be able to jump in. I'm going to be over here smoking a like corncob pipe or something. Um, but uh, yeah, I, like... What is everybody's mileage with this movie? I believe Cody had seen it before. I own it on disc, but I've still never watched it. It's one of those like wonderful looking criterions that sits on the shelf and that I didn't end up watching. Um, so my mileage was zero before seeing it at the trial on this weekend. Uh, Cody, you had seen it before? Yeah, I saw it once a couple of years ago. So a um, little too much backstory about me. But whenever uh, around once a year, I make a point of going Back to back to my homeland of uh, Rochester, Minnesota, um, the grassy plains, the flowing, um, you know, deep blue rivers. Um, it's actually just a stagnant lake, but I go back there once a year, um, and that usually lines up with the like the cr- Criterion July monthly sale. Um, and usually, what I'll do is I'll just like go to the my local Barnes and Noble in Rochester and bring my brother along, and he actually picked out the um, the Lady Snowblood, the two pack. Um, and so like he, he picked that out and we watched those together. And so that was when I last watched this or the only other time I watched this movie was with him, um, a couple years back. Um, and, uh, I'm bringing up the thing that you said, you I was, were gonna I was bring just up, about, Jason, I was going to say your brother wasn't the only person you watched this movie with, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's my, my family's home that I go back to and my mother happened to be in the room for most of this movie. And, uh, contrary to what I expected, she was very delighted by this film. Any, anytime somebody was, was ganked with a sword. Um, and I I think the, the actual, you know, the heightened sensationalized effects of like deep red blood spurting out of somebody, she got a real kick out of that. And that's not exactly wonderful. Um, yeah, it wasn't my expectation, but that's, yeah, I mean, I think an easy misconception and certainly one that I had going into this movie for the first time and even revisiting it is just kind of like forgetting what this movie is is all about. It's it's close to 100 minutes and that's not, you know, if we're just taking the the straightest line through possible and saying, you know, Lady Snowblood is going to get her revenge, um, then it, like even that wouldn't get you necessarily to 100 minutes. There's a lot of um, build up. There's a lot of mythos that sort of plays into the revenge, which is something I really like about this movie and like about Kill Bill. Um, and like about a handful of Westerns that are probably more than a handful of Westerns that do that really well. Just the, you know, the, the, um, build, we're building up the environment. We're building up the personal mythologies. We're giving you a little too much information about, um, the antagonists. We're, we're talking about the nature of revenge a little too much. We're talking, a, uh, a lot about what is going on during this particular place in time that's feeding into the story of Lady Snowblood and sort of like why she need, like why she ended up on this path in the first place. That's, probably pretty important and um hopefully somebody will be able to characterize all that better than me but that really stood out to me this time around 
Um, and that's, um, it makes for a pretty rewarding watch and a rewarding revisit as well. Um, and also the pen is mightier than the sword. Um, people are, are, are saying that, uh, you know, this, this uh, hearing this the, more the and journalist more. in this movie, I forgot that there was a fucking journalist in this movie. It's, like, yeah. oh, that's so funny. Um, very no, this, this movie was, it's a very yeah. weird side plot, but there's, yeah, it's, sorry. I'll, I'll cut it off there. It's so yeah, rich. I don't want to cut you off, but the, the journalist side plot, the writer thing, it's so, there's so much to talk about there. Um, I do want to just focus on like, for a quick moment, does your mom t- typically have bloodlust in in film? Does she like watch movies with a certain giddiness around the the gore, or is was this completely surprising to you? Honestly, really not. But then again, uh, she is from Wisconsin, so there's always like that sort of underlying edge that to her and, and people Midwest, from yeah. there that that I, I'm learning about more and more. Mm-hmm. So that's that's something that's been in the back of my mind ever since. I'm on I'm on the lookout for it, uh, both within her, others, and also myself. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> moms can kind of surprise you my mom like uh she they my parents watch a good amount of movies um and they my mom just like emailed me like this morning and was like uh your your father sent me an article uh about giallo films and i had never heard of it but I'm, i've been watching <laughs> some of them and i think there's some interesting stuff in there Hell yeah. I was like, okay mom yeah uh, <laughs> all right <laughs> i heard about this weirdo little film suspiria can you tell me anything about suspiria some Aaron? sexist content in these films but some interesting stuff too <laughs> like i okay. like the color and you're like oh mom to be fair that was just every italian movie it wasn't just the giallos uh <laughs> so not even worry. was that is still yeah, it's still every uh, italian movie sure. italians yes Every Sorry. Italian movie. Um, I love uh, Aaron that you brought up the or sorry, not Aaron. Um, the uh, uh, fucking like building out the lore and the mythos and the personal mythologies of these characters because it drove home to me. This I've never read the manga upon which this is based, but it drove home to me like there's just such an essential and very compelling like integration here between manga writing styles in general. Like I don't know how familiar you are, but with, with story structures and and like the ability to take a simple idea like revenge for your mother's. Uh, rape and murder and sort of blow it out to all of its logical extents and you know the longest running manga great examples of that like death note is one of those that explores a very simple idea from every single possible angle and this is like a movie i think uh as a movie it it does like capture that well enough to like sustain like you said it's 100 minute runtime or so um but it was one of the things that i really really enjoyed was that we don't just have like fight scene after fight scene we don't have uh, you know, like incredible, like leagues of exposition here and there. It's very smartly meted out in between, like very eye-catching cut. Excuse me, not cutscenes. It's not a, not a video game. Leave your camera on, Cody. Um, it's it, like in between uh the exposition and like interesting new characters and stuff. And I think the third act with the writer sort of gives it a certain necessary new life and expands the the universe a little bit, so to speak. Um, I'm speaking a bit more in comic book slash manga terms than in film terms, just because I think it is such a very like confluent, confident, uh, like merging of those styles, not just visually, but like in, in a storytelling sense, I again, haven't read the manga, but I must assume over it's like 15 chapters or so. We don't just get like the a plot constantly. We get like diversions into people's backstories. We get sort of like, uh, branching paths. And the thing that I loved from this movie was like, Okay, so she's got to hunt down these four people that are responsible for, you know, the curse that's placed upon her. Um, and then, but you, without ever even considering, like, are any of them dead? Could any of them kill themselves? What's the implications of that on the main story? And it's just like one of those, and I know that's not exclusively a manga thing, but I've just seen it like repeated and perfected through so many manga that uh, it just like, it rang really, really like satisfyingly to me in this movie. That's really interesting, Jason, um, because, and I guess I, 
I should be clear, first of all, my top-level thoughts. Um, I really like this movie. I especially um, found myself thinking a lot about the fascinating placement of Japanese... Uh, it's fascinating placement within Japanese culture and Japanese history uh, relative to when it came out. Um, this movie has a relationship with the Meiji era that is very, very unusual from all I know of Japanese literature and media, which, to be fair, there's lots I don't know. But um, there's a very 1970s pessimism that runs through this entire movie that I find really fascinating. I love the fact that it's a movie largely about failure. It's about a bunch of people who can't do what they set out to do um, and kind of about like the failure of any sort of institution or ideology in actually being able to motivate human behavior. Um, which I find really fascinating. Um, I think that's personified in Lady Snowblood. It's personified in the Meiji era itself, but it's even personified in this movie's um, historical relationship to Japanese nationalism and pre-Meiji Japan. Um, it's much more cynical about both the new era of Japanese history and the former era yeah. than most things I've seen. I feel like you know, you think about something like um, The Last Samurai, which I know is not even Japanese, but something like Rioni Kenshin, something like any number of Meiji era fiction. Um, it sort of is, it uses that changing of the guard to either be cynical about modernity or about traditionalism. This movie is deeply pessimistic and cynical about both in very particular ways that make uh, Lady Snowblood as a character and uh, the sort of storyline as it plays out really fascinatingly bleak. Uh, and I think it even sort of says something really um, stark and really um, frightening about human nature in general in a way that I really loved unpacking. Um, all that is to say, I actually don't know if I totally agree that I, that it's a really great um, marriage of manga and film. Um, I was frustrated by a lot of the filmic techniques in this movie, to be honest. I think in particular... There is like a constant narration that I actually think does a pretty huge disservice to some of the acting in this movie. Um, there's one scene in particular as like a case example where uh, um, Mayuko um, uh, Kaji as Yuki Kashima, Lady Snowblood, is watching children play. And the narration helpfully tells us that even though she's supposed to be this single-minded, vengeful spirit of death, she is trembling with emotion upon seeing these these children um, absolutely no reason that had to be narrated. Um, Meiko Kaji does an amazing acting job in this movie. She actually, like, I, I think her acting in this movie is phenomenal in that we are constantly told that she is this single-minded, cold-blooded killer, and nothing about her acting performance suggests that. Yeah. Her acting yeah. is so impassioned and so vengeful and wrathful and angry that it, it, like, at no point do I think that she is, like, a Terminator. She is instead a very angry woman throughout um, that is totally undermined by the fact that the narration cannot shut up for five minutes and keeps telling you that over and over again, which is like maybe pulled directly from the manga, but it really, really got to me um, after a while. Um, I think that like the cuts back and forth through time, again, would have been better without the constant narration, especially because the narration doesn't actually do a very good job of what it's setting out to do, which is set the table for like the stakes. Um I was just, I guess I was just frustrated by some of the storytelling techniques that were happening here. And I felt like it, it created this thing that like, and maybe, maybe it was my own expectations, right? I was expecting something really, really sleek, right? And really brutal and really to the point, like a lot of my favorite samurai movies, right? Where they're almost underexplained, right? Where like nobody ever says anything, 
like nobody there is no narration there's not even really much of a plot it's just like a sword a guy dies and then like a stoic figure walks off into the Mm -hmm. and instead of that we got this like this really lush really in my opinion overbearing uh like constant narration monologue um that sort of in my opinion undermined what what could have been something a lot more uh pointed and sort of sharp uh no pun intended or pun intended um and uh so that sort of like i guess i really liked this movie i just wish that it had been better at being filmic in that way um and that kind of frustrated me every now and then but i'm i'm interested in what everybody else thought as well i i'm a fan of the i'm a fan of the narration in this movie i think i am pro, I think that's yeah, like pro narration. Uh, i i i can't even i i i think i like agree mostly with what you're saying i think that my like I, I kind of thought it was cool, and I think that, like, viewing this, especially now, when I think that the almost, like, objective viewpoint is that, like, clumsy, overbearing narrations are, like, undeniably bad, right? That, that Like, that is something that, like, I think film in Which, general has, like, gotten yeah, away from. For the record, I don't necessarily agree with, right? Like, in fact, I've always yes. been sort of, like, resistant to the whole show-don't-tell thing, because I think, like... uh I just watched Casino by Scorsese, yeah. for instance. Yes. And it's like, without yeah. narration, that movie is nothing. And that movie's yeah. a fucking masterpiece. But like, it, it, just in this one instance, I think I really didn't like it. But go on. I, I, I think I, I can't like disagree with what you're saying. I do think that there is like something wrapped up in there uh, kind of around the narration's tie to the kind of act structure of this film and how I view that as like, uh, kind of being tied to the kind of the manga roots uh, of the story, but also being tied to the idea of uh, like Japanese newspaper novels, like very traditional right, that's a really newspaper good novels, well, which are my, my understanding from a very brief Google. I've obviously not read any of these, but my from Googling around these kind of started uh, pretty period in a period accurate manner. They started in like the, the very late 18th. 1800s, like early 19th century. So that I think that we're supposed to take that Ashio, the, the journalist character is like one of the first few characters who like started writing these, right? And it's I like an emerging kind of, art form. Yes, very much so. Um, and I think that there is like, I've always kind of like found the idea of those newspaper novels to be like very fascinating. Um, I, I, it's like something where there's, there are like very, very kind of like shaky comparisons in like American culture, like comic, like weekly comics, like things like that, that are like not even really the same. There of course used to be like overseas, you know, Dickens and whatnot, um, writing similar kind of stuff in newspapers. I found like that framing, like very confusing as we were joking about the the reporter who kind of comes out of nowhere and basically like writes, you know, uh, lady snowblood's best story is like this, the story in the newspaper. I found that framing confusing at first, but then I, I, I think it kind of weirdly ties it together uh, in a way that I ended up digging. And I think that like that kind of helps or helped sell me on kind of the, the narrative uh, like device here that, that kind of makes the story work. Yeah. So frust- frustratingly, uh, I think that's like exactly the right argument to win me over. Right. Because like the thing I really liked uh. about this movie is the fact that like Lady Snowblood is actually kind of a pretty impersonal character. We relate to her through the public perception of her. Like that's that's the point of the frame story and the narration that eventually is made explicit, right? Like it turns out that this movie is the serialized novel that this journalist is writing about her. And so we have this distance from her, right? Because like we're not actually like watching maybe her personally so much as we're watching the like 
mythological storytelling of her persona as it's depicted for the public by this journalist toward a particular end, right? And it turns out he's a political firebrand. He's writing this for a purpose. He's writing this to help her, but he's also writing this for his career and toward his writers. And I think it's really important to consider that model of storytelling when we talk about this movie, because in my opinion, this is a much more political movie than I think that... uh, it might appear at yes, first, yes. right? Like I think that it I, it's really fascinated with um, Japanese history and Japanese culture and also sort of like in general how imperialism and um, capitalism and greed are sort of like at a fundamental remove from humans and like people and so that like the history of Japan is not the history of the people of Japan. It's like the history of like evil powers that have sort of subverted uh, the history of Japan in a really fascinating way. And Lady Snowblood becomes this sort of like, like people's icon for the idea that they might be able to wrest rest power back from those uh, macro historical forces. And I think that that's like kind of what is most interesting to me about this movie. And I think that there is an argument to be made that it lives in that narration. Um, so I think that's a pretty good point. I just, yeah. there's just something about how unelegant it is that I guess yes. sort of got to me a little bit. It's just like, there's so much, like, again, like, like, why do we have to undermine this amazing acting performance by explaining it at every turn, right? It's just sort of like, I, like, I have eyes movie. I can see the conflict that is going on in Lady Snowblood. I don't need you to tell me about it every five minutes. I don't know. So definitely still have two minds, but I think that's a pretty good point. Yeah, I will, we we can meet in the middle. Um, I will say that I think that like it it also does kind of. Um, I think this movie is like largely known for kind of jarringly like switching between moments of like uh, like kind of serenity and then moments of like just absolute you know bloodshed and chaos and whatnot. And I think there is something maybe like slightly tied into like that narration, but also I think like the the editing and and the the kind of the zoom shots and whatnot, like it is like kind of chaotic in a way that that feels cohesive as a whole. Um, I also think like kind of slightly tied into like the the political nature of this film. I, I so I have not seen any of the other films uh, by the director uh, uh, Fujita. Um, the the main thing that like you hear when you kind of like Google about him and specifically this film is that like <clears throat> the Lady Snowblood films, both of which you directed. Uh, were like very outside of the, like the norm for like the kind of films that he made. Um, but the one thing that I did read, and I, maybe there's something here, is that the films, at least previous to this one, were largely very generally concerned with like uh, very young people in Japan um, who like were very distanced or like unable to connect with their parents and oh, then, like wow. the generation that came before them, right? And so there is like some sort of like thematic through line here, even if they were not yeah that's extremely violent action films um that kind of ties that in together i think i I agree with you we're like this is a very political film it is also like a deceptively political film and that a lot of it is kind of in the background very much so yeah i mean i think maybe that's us being uh you know many years removed and also americans Um, right that's a good point yeah. But but yeah, like in in particular about that political context that I I talked about it a little bit, but um what I find so fascinating about this is um 
how cynical it is about both like before and after the Meiji era, right? Like we've got before the Meiji era, which um, the narration sort of um, almost coquettishly sets up as like a more peaceful time before completely undermining that for, for the rest of the movie in one sort of like instance of irony, right? Where it's like, oh, it was 400 years of peace. And then this new government came along and they were obsessed with power and a strong military and they wanted to do this and that. And then it's like, well, wait a minute, like, the Tokugawa era was not a time of peace, my man. It was rather famously not that. Uh, and, and also, like, you know, like, that's how we get, like, these destitute villagers who are being taken advantage of by the villains. But there is this sort of great continuity of inequality that this movie sketches out where it's like there's this changing of the guard, right? Where, like, Western thought is happening and, like, the Meiji Restoration is happening and so we're moving towards modernity. But in reality, like the movie keeps telling us, this is really the same powerful people using the same underhanded tactics to achieve the same positions, right? It's like there's um, the way they characterize the center of power in Meiji is it's actually just sort of this ongoing orgy of powerful people um, and... Uh, these main villains in the, the story with Lady Snowblood, they're kind of all in their own ways trying to launder their pasts, right? They're trying to, like, create something new using the, exploiting this new era in order to sort of, like, escape from the sins of their previous lives, so to speak. And Lady Snowblood becomes a symbol of how they're not going to be able to do that, right? Or she is, like, she is, like, literally in this great metaphor that they keep bringing up in Ashura, right? Where she's like the living memory of her mother, right? Where she's like literally supposed to be revenge for the sins of the past revisited. And she is like really trying to um, dehumanize herself and being dehumanized by the people who trained her and brought her up toward that singular purpose, right? They keep telling her, you're not a person. You're just like this vengeance. And I think that, um, this the movie's like that character's relationship to whether or not she's a person of her own or vengeance is really loaded with a lot of political messaging right and it makes the fact that he wrote so many or made so many movies about like generational responsibilities and generational disconnects all the more uh fascinating right because it's like here we have this character who is literally like trying to subliminate her entire existence into like this past responsibility that she had and she's failing to do so, right? And like that, the fact that she's trying to do it is fascinating. And the fact that she's failing to do so is, I think, even more important, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I'm glad you brought that up because it's one of the things that stuck out to me about uh, Gishiro in particular. It's one of the final people, uh, Rire's dad, uh, and one of the final, the final one of the four, I believe. It's the one who um, was supposedly dead that she finds out isn't actually. He just went into hiding after supposedly being, uh, mur- or excuse me, um, dying in a shipwreck on its way to America, et cetera. Uh, so Gishiro is uh, the final of the four um, people who uh, she wants to enact vengeance on. Um, he's still alive and actually probably like inarguably the most successful of the criminals who like perpetuated the original like curse. And, and crime. specifically because he's getting in on the ground floor he, of the new government that's emerging. He is a war right? profiteer. He is part of the military industrial complex as it's like starting to bud in Japan um, as a result of as a, partially a result of uh, Western influence. Um, and like, even he, I forget the exact lines, but even he is intimated to like, not really truly believe in it. He recognizes the opportunity that it's going to give him. Yeah. And, I, and, and he I, makes it clear that nobody does. Right. right? Exactly. He's like one of many he, people who are just like profiteering off of this idea. Right, his, his, uh, I think he centers it on the Rokume Khan that, um, uh, 
actually really I didn't know it until Googling it after the hotel slash like, you know, society club that existed uh, in Japan as like, a, it was sort of a center, not necessarily like, I guess it's Wikipedia tells me that it's um, actual historical importance as a place of like what westernizing thought and modernizing like discourse is highly overstated, but it was a place where like, quote unquote, important uh, Western uh, ambassadors and, you know, forward thinking Meiji supporters sort of came together and just sort of helped decide the future of Japan. Um, very, it's very, the kind of thing where in reality, it maybe wasn't that important, but when you put it in a movie, it becomes it has, like, sick as hell. deep symbolic and, purpose. And yeah. the main bad guy can grab the J Japanese flag after being slashed and shot to death and fall on the ground. Oh, it's, it's, it's so, so good, beautiful. man. There's so much there, but um, it, it's like focusing on Gishiro in particular. I think he is a great vector for that. I think what the movie is saying about that in particular, like its overarching statement is like, the people who promote the idea of progress, westernization, modernization don't believe there's no real belief there. And if we're extrapolating that, which I will from that to like any political or social movement that actually gains like institutional power, there's not belief in that thing per se. It is only in the opportunities that it affords. Uh, he has no faith in like the ability of the Japanese government to like make life better through westernization, make life better through foreign influence from from America, et cetera, and, and from its allies. But uh, rather, he recognizes that there's a lot of money in selling weapons to these people. And it just becomes that simple. Um, it, like, and I think that uh, is like, I'm not saying I think it's it's on the face of this movie. But um, I really like how you portrayed that as like, uh, uh, the sort of facade that Lady Snowblood Yuki is there to like dispel. She's like, you can't like, there's no, um, th if there's no belief in the thing, you are like, your whole existence, you, 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 you will be wiped away with the past you're trying to wipe away and put in the back, back in the rear view so that you can move forward and, and leverage these uh, ideals, et cetera, because these ideals are not built on anything. They're discourse. They're, they're audible, like they're talking points. They're not meaningful changes for people like you because you are already on top of it. You have been given opportunities over the last 20 years of my life, she says, not literally, but in her, you know, in the, I guess in the, theology of the movie so to speak she is she has this um like her entire life has been literally cursed by her by her mother's existence or excuse me by her mother's insistence that she become a tool of vengeance they have bandied their small-time thug careers into incredibly successful career criminals and war profiteers and she is like the one element of their pasts that she can that they cannot escape i'm just restating what you said at this point but i think with the context of what gishiro is and how he like is that sort of hole in the swiss cheese of you know the the forward-thinking japanese government is the bad guy and the traditionalist japanese like uh supporters of you know the 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 more pure japan so to speak are at direct odds and it's like not not really both had you know uh both had puppet strings both had people who and they're the same people exactly and <laughs> they're like literally just the same powerful people who are like riding ideology yeah. into continued power and wealth. I really right? like how this movie has that operating at that level and also has scenes where like we're splitting a dead body in half because it looks cool as hell, you know? Right. Um, I, I love that. I think that's a really good point, Jason. And like, that's kind of the, the overarching, very like it, it's, it's weird because it's like, I wonder if cynicism and pessimism was just like, uh, like global state in the 1970s because it's like this is such a like American obsession in the 1970s was making just the most hopeless fucking movies possible but this movie really reminds me of that too and what I really love in particular is how nobody is safe from this sort of incredulousness right this sort of idea that you are not actually who you say you are like even like I said this this movie is largely about 
uh, Yuki's mother's failure in some sense, right? Where like she literally says like, oh, I, I created this baby to be an instrument of vengeance for me and I am going to possess it. Like she she invokes uh, Japanese folklore, like literally, right? Like she goes back to like traditionalist Japanese spiritualism to be like, I am making an Ashura, which is a, a spirit of vengeance where I am literally going to possess this baby and through it, I am going to wreak my vengeance, right? And obviously that doesn't happen because like the narration keeps saying, like Lady Snowblood desperately wants to be an Ashura because she's been taught that her whole life. She's had it drummed into her head, but she's not. She's not her mom. She's just a woman, right? Like she's she's an assassin. Yes, she's very driven. Yes, but she is constantly alienated by her own life purpose, right? Like throughout, and this is this is a big part of why like she isn't this sort of stoic badass killer, and that's why she takes it on the nose so bad when she ultimately fails so frequently, right? Like it turns out that one of the four people is dead, right? It turns out that uh I maybe I'm reading a little bit into this, but like very few of the kills are cathartic at all, right? Like, in fact, these are mostly broken down, shitty people who are on their last legs, and she just sort of like comes along and murders them without any real resistance, right? And it's sort of like this is not the path of the Ashura, right? Like, it's not even the path that we expected, right? It's right. like I was expecting a movie where she has four badass sword duels against like demon people, right? Like really evil people. And instead it's like the first guy she kills, she like, she finds him and he's pimping out his daughter unknowingly uh, as a prostitute to pay for his medicine. And he's a drunk gambler and he's dying. And she drags him out onto the beach and stabs him to death. Right. And like, that's it. And and then she uh, inexplicably takes him out of the water so that she can throw him back into the water, which I found but it's hilarious. The meaning. He's now the right, bamboo right. wife. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? It's sort of like, all of these different intersections of like cultural invocation and political invocation and um, ideological invocation, like none of them are actually operating. Like you can't actually make an Ashura because the generation that follows is going to have their own identity and they're going to have their own uh, needs and wants and perspectives that you will not be able to destroy. Uh, and um, the Meiji restoration can't actually be this sort of like grand laundering of Japan's uh, in past inequality right. because it it's actually that. a continuation of that same idea of the same ideas that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And um, it's, it's both sort of like this deep pessimism and also kind of a saving grace, right? This idea that like, actually like it's going to be what it's going to be. It's not going to like, you can't actually like ideologically shift the way things are the way that you think you can or something along those lines. Right. No, totally. And I think using Lady Snowblood as a barometer to gauge like 1970s cynicism is like a genuinely pretty cool idea. And that's something I got thinking about. And I think Aaron, you touched on it as well. The idea that like, I mean, this movie, you get it when you're watching. And I think when people think about it after the fact, after the fact, I know I certainly have of how it there's a sort of whiplash effect between like, um, uh, like tonal shifts, um, even if it's just visual. Um, and I found myself feeling that uh, a lot. I mean, even just the image of somebody named Lady Snowblood conjures a lot of um, kind of like visual tropes that alongside each other. Um, just like, oh, that's, you know, uh, snow imagery with blood splattering across it. And I know Jason, without you having seen um, uh, specifically Kill Bill Volume 1, I, I, I think in particular, but just like that's like a very specific uh, image that seems so um, 
I don't know, like tried and true uh, to this point for like, I don't know, ad- genre action films that are trying to go that certain direction. But the 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 scene at the start of the movie, sort of the, I guess, kind of the inciting incident scene, even though it is I think technically a flashback of this family walking through an idyllic meadow, everything is extremely brightly lit. Like it's not snow, but it may as well be just because everything is so bright and pristine and and like white whitely shaded um and then remaining in this environment and from there it's just this this tumbling cavalcade of just like the most brutal context for any sort of situation of this country is at war there's uh, a forced draft and we come to learn that these people who are approaching this family are um conning this village into paying money to get out of the draft um, so it's, and meanwhile, these dirty capitalists are, it's, oh, it's the guy's a conscription officer. It turns out he, you know, he's uh, just like the new teacher at the school, but he's a conscription officer. He's wearing all white, get his ass. And then they get his ass and he's gone. And, um, it's just, <laughs> and, and he gets stabbed like 16 times and then he falls right. to his knees and is bleeding more than any human being has ever been bleeding. And he goes, this is an outrage. I thought that line in particular was so funny. It's like, I guess that's one thing to say when you've been stabbed 16 times. Yeah. No, and, and I mean, there's, and that sets, that sets the tone for the journey to follow um, in, in some ways. I don't know. In some ways it kind of culminates best in that scene, but there are a lot, I mean, the image of, I mean, the, that great slashing of the almost corpse in the half, but there's a, that, that sort of whiplash is continuously present. And then it gets to the point where it is, you know, you, you want this, to work for ladies for lady snowblood the titular lady snowblood you want it to work you want it to get a revenge and when that opportunity gets taken away that's like this the the rug is being pulled out from my feet in a completely different way at the start of the film than it is at the end and that's um i don't know a real a real testament to to the bleakness uh and i i guess to an extent you know the the greater extent the cynicism of of this movie um but i'm not a cynic because I think this movie is cool and good and fun, and I'll watch it again someday because I'm a sicko. Um, but that's that's my vengeful tale, Harry. Yeah, I mean, I think um, one other thing that that like I think is even tougher maybe to talk about just because like it has been so. There's been such a pronounced cultural shift in the time, like especially I think in a post Kill Bill world, it's super easy to forget how probably subversive this movie was. And like particularly in Japan, right? It's like I think that the fact that she is literally called Lady Snowblood is important, right? She dresses like a high class lady, like a like a landed gentry type of person. She is uh, beautiful. She is demure in the way that um, traditional Japanese beauties are supposed to be. She's played by um, Maiko Kaji, who is extremely beautiful, right? Like all of these things are like I think it's really important that like this is specifically about women, right? Like, I I think that, like, that's kind of um, almost facile to say at this point, but, like, particularly this very, like, history of the marginalization of women within Japan and within history generally, right? Like, her mom is this incredibly marginalized figure, right? She was a character who was uh, used, abused, and then discarded, and she lands in a women's prison, and even the women hate her there because she is sleeping with all of the guards, right? And then it turns out that she secretly had this, like, grand um, plan, and it this grand plan is, like, this e- evocation of this, like, long, grand tradition of Japanese history, right? Where it's like, actually, I'm going back to the start. I'm going to create an ancient Japanese demon that is going to do my bidding, because that is my only recourse as a woman in this 
world. And there is this sort of sense that like Lady Snowblood, therefore, she becomes this sort of like vengeful spirit, not just of her mother, but like of the marginalized in general, right? Like Mm -hmm. when she kills the first guy, which is the most traditional action movie kill, he asks her why she does it. And she said, for all the people you've made suffer, right? And he's literally a mob boss at that point. Um, And so there is this idea that Lady Snowblood is, is, again, sort of like, and I think this is a big part of why the newspaper story is important, right? She is like this people's hero. She is like this idea that like, oh, like the people are going to have their revenge for the ways that we've been exploited and marginalized and abused through history. Like we still have that power. She is sort of symbolic of that in that way. She's like, um, and uh, I think that um, I, I, I don't know. I lost my train of thought, but that's, uh, I think that's very important to my reading of the character is like specifically that it, that it's about women, that it's about like, like working class people or undermined people. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, that's right. I just, I really love what you said about the, the draft Cody, because I think that's such a good, like there's so much nested cynicism there. Right. Where like the, the narration even, uh, plays out that like, Oh yeah, the, the draft was like, it's a super anti-democratic evil thing that the Japanese government was doing basically because they wanted to have a dick measuring contest with European powers. They wanted to like, Oh, we need to create as strong a nationalist army as possible so that we can be a country that stands up to uh, America and Europe. The way we're going to do that is by conscripting the peasants. The peasants revolted against this and there was a big, uh, like terrible riots and everything. And then on top of that, like this already patently evil thing, right? Which a draft is, terribly violent and terribly evil um it it becomes this thing that these powers that be exploit further right by literally using it to rob people more to rob wealth from people so it's like there's this idea that like at every level like every turn of history every sort of like mutation of ideology has always only been used to uh exploit and marginalize these people. And their only recourse is like this almost like uh, Messiah-like thing that they can whisper about, this spirit of vengeance that's going to avenge them, right? Like like fucking Batman, except it's Lady Snowblood. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what um, Riore, the journalist, is meant to do is like amplify that and, and, right. and like, you know, uh, lure out. Um, I found it fun that there is a character like that in the manga, apparently. I'm again, didn't read, just read various synopses, um, but they combined the sort of father figure character with the writer character um, to create like a sort of guide for her. I, uh, me, uh, I, I wrote it down somewhere. Don't have it. Um, it's not really material to this, but uh, anyway, um, I wanted to open prompt it before we get to like our final segments uh, there. Obviously it's a movie that's like highly stylized. I had more, it had more in common with like, Tokyo Drifter, etc. And I know that that's my like just touchstone of like stylish 70s Japanese movies. Uh, but it had more in common with that than with like a Jitageki movie or um, uh, what is the term for sword fighting movie um, in, in Japanese cinema. But anyway, like it had more in common with that with that like very flashy, colorful, bright red blood and stuff. This may not have been surprising to anybody who's actually seen Kill Bill. I was not necessarily caught off guard in a bad way, but just very surprised that it was way more visually arresting and like tended to try and make its visuals and its theme intersect a little more explicitly, a little bit more like, oh, this works as pop cinema, but also it's like, oh, it's pretty cool that actually Gishiro is 
dying violently and grabbing the Japanese flag on his way down. It's pretty cool that during the uh, scene where she meets Rire and tell and asks him to tell her story that like we get flashes of the actual art from the like illustrator of um, of the original manga. And that's like that's it. Like Harry said, that's him telling the story through the movie to us kind of thing. Uh, it it found like really cool ways, I think, to bring those things together to like tell its um, narrative to tell like uh, to tell its story, to tell its narrative through um, through the visuals, through like what what you're actually seeing and hearing. I wanted to know open prompt. What were the moments that you guys saw its style and story intersecting? Were there any of those like scenes or specific shots that were like, this is what the movie's doing and I'm seeing it pretty plainly on the surface, uh, Harry? Uh, well, one thing I really love about this movie is how it's so pointedly not a martial arts movie, which you might think it's going to be. This movie does not give a shit about making sure you can see the choreography. Yeah. In fact, like all of the like the camera is so shaky, it does not linger at all on the actual sword strokes. It doesn't linger at all on the actual fighting. What it does spend a great deal of time lingering on is the consequences of that violence. Yes. Like people bleed like like they're stuffed with like pressurized like blood right like i think we were even making jokes about it at the time it's like oh everybody in this movie must have had really high blood pressure <laughs> right but like legitimately like it makes sure you see that like the horror of the violence being inflicted and the bodies of the people being slain and how much it must suck to be cut apart by a samurai sword right etc and i think that like that was something that that almost bothered me until i understood that like no like this is important right it's it's important to the sort of subversive scope of the movie right we're just like there's not really like lady snowblood has no equal in this movie she's she never has a sword fight against somebody who can hold their own against her that's not the point of the movie right the point of the movie is like we created this terminator who is supposed to go out into the world and reap this wreak this unholy vengeance and her targets are so wholly inadequate for her the scope of her vengeance in a way that's frustrating even to her Right. It's like she she goes out and she keeps trying to find like this worthy opponent, essentially. Right. To sort of like have the sort of vengeance that she's always dreamed of. And instead, she keeps getting these broken down old assholes. Right. Like one of them hangs like one of them gets hung before she can kill him or uh, before she can kill her. Excuse me. One of them turns out to be dead. One of them is just a ge- degenerate gambler who doesn't put up a fight. Um, and it, it's it's so it's almost comically frustrating. Right. I think that there there's like moments of sort of like this movie is really thumbing its nose at the idea of vengeance. And I think that a stylistically, a lot of what it's doing gets there. Right. Where a lot of like the the idea that like there is no catharsis in this movie whatsoever. And we want there to be because it's a vengeance movie and, and like catharsis is supposed to be the entire thing. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's there's really I mean, even like at the end. Right. When she when she finally kills the main big bad, she has to stab through his son to do it right and like that's deeply undermining of her catharsis too and so there is never like this moment and it's sort of an interesting um it's it's a sort of interesting criticism of the idea that you can sort of like create these narratives for people to follow and then that they will actually have the effect that you want them to but it also looks really cool it looks so cool which right. is my, no, I mean, the, the movie the looks blood. great yeah. The, the 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 use of blood particularly uh is very cool it's very uh uh i guess impressionistic right like there's always some sort of like white uh like fabric for the blood to splatter on 
You know what I mean? Just everywhere she goes is just filled with like white sheets. She's it draws attention white. to itself. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I, I really dig that. I also have to say that I, I never before has there been a film that has so much blood where the blood is also so thick, right? There's like a lot of, I mean, there are scenes where it's like shooting up the geyser, right? But there are also a lot of scenes where blood is like gurgling. You know what I mean? It's like like almost Play-Doh consistency coming out of someone's so mouth. Good. And I, I really it's so much that. more evocative yeah, than very, like a thin, good. soupy blood. Yeah. Absolutely. Damn, stop, guys. Y'all are making me real hungry. Uh, I, one, I, I guess the, I mean, y'all characterize those points super well. The stylistic um, component I latched onto a ton was, I mean, it's, it's almost uh, not to, you know, overstep or, you know, be out of my element, but I, I feel like it's kind of a cheat code in your movie just to have Miko Kaji being able to emote in the way that she does, just having that as like a visual punctuation mark to like guide between shots or sequences, like multiple times within the same scene, or just like instead of taking a beat or taking a breath, you just like cut to her face and she's she's acting the hell out of this uh, out of her Dude, role. Um, best face actor of all time, maybe like maybe one of like holy fucking I'm god, right some here, of the expressions Harry. she has. There. Oh my god, it's it's really something. Sorry, Jason, second best face actor of all time. Yeah, can we talk about Jason's face acting uh, on this uh, on this episode? What uh, what stood out to I you guys? I wish we could. I wish you could see it, dear listener. I've got I've got uh, a quick he's... clip of like my greatest hit. <laughs> he made that sound with his face. Think about that. Was that, Think that about it that. for you, Cody? Yeah, that's it. Just a <laughs> shout out to Lady Snowblood's Just, face. I I like Harry. You mentioned how I didn't consider how emotive she was being because she is like still supposed to be the dead eyed killer sort of thing. But all of the art from the manga is literally very dead eyed. Like it's intentionally so. I think that's an adaptation from like an intentional one from the pen and paper version to the film version. Is that like? this character works a lot better when you can tell that there's like an yeah. emotion that undercuts like her, her mission or like right? her, her because, like, that's status. why you cast Mako Kaji because like, she's the one who she's the woman who can glare so hard that I swear to God, she sees yeah. me in the, in the theater. It's like, there are, there are moments where she looks at the camera and it's like, ah, <laughs> she was <laughs> like, Oh God. <laughs> before this, she was known for, Not- sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, not since Detour have we had a glare this oh good. Oh, my God. In a, right, in a exactly. Great, Detour. great comparison. Uh, great long episode of TV. Um, there is, she was known apparently for, I haven't seen any of these movies, but uh, Female Prisoner Scorpion, is it? That whole short series. She was apparently the lead in that up to this. Yep. Yeah. Which is what yeah. helped yep. her get this role. I did not know that. You got you to gotta see Blind Woman's Curse, yeah. too. Blind Woman's Curse is fucking amazing. One of these days, we'll have another outro segment where we just give recommendations. We tried that once upon a time, but then it got supplanted by <laughs> things about gifts and about bullshit. Uh, speaking of which, um, oh, God, I have it in. I literally created it. I cannot believe I forgot to put it in my, in my soundboard, but I have a great new sound effect for... Oh, our no. second and final segment. Uh, uh, I'm, it's, I'm afraid it's, of it's this. It's called the junk drawer. That was oh, the sound effect. I just a good listener. Sure. Um, and I'll, okay. I'll open it up now for <laughs> Harry to kick us off. I just had one more motif, which is that there's a lot of women screaming and crying in this movie. It it opens with a baby screaming, followed closely by the mother screaming. It ends with um, Lady Snowblood kind of has one final cathartic breakdown scream. Um, right before she maybe dies, but then doesn't die, which I really liked. Um, and I, I just think that like there's something so evocative and symbolic about the idea of just like this 
this female cry of wordless anguish, right? Which is like, it's so expressive of so much, but at the same time, it can't express anything, right? It's, it's not articulate. It's just this like pre-verbal, like guttural noise about like suffering. And I, I really like this as sort of like, this is kind of a fable about that, right? About like, hey, that needs to mean something. Like the suffering has to mean something. And it, it, what it comes to mean is Lady Snowblood, right? It's like she is like this um, concentration of years of feminine anguish revisited upon the people who uh, are responsible. And I, I think that like as folklore, there is something super like um, ironically non-pessimistic about the idea that like that will ha- like it it exists, right? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. like this this rage will not die. Like at the end, she gets up. Right. Yeah. It's like actually like Lady Snowblood will return. She is not gone from this world because, you know, as long as feminine anguish exists, as long as there are people trying to exploit and undermine women, like there will be an avatar. Fucking, of it. Yeah. Here she comes. Yeah. yeah it, it rocks. Let's, it's let's, great. let's hear it for women real quick. Anybody else right. want to hear? Let's hear it for women. Aaron, it doesn't count. You were on mute. I was muted, but was clapped. Okay. Thank you. Right. Uh, anybody else with, with. He didn't want to take up more space, you know? <laughs> He wanted to sit, sit his uh, white male ass down and listen for a moment. Uh, any other junk drawer thoughts before we move to our final segments? Okay, my final... My, okay, I, I have a junk drawer thought, and it is that uh, Masaki Hirao's score goes fucking so hard. Bro, I, oh I, I don't want to take God. too much time out of it, but whenever you Google this score... And actually, I can't find a version that exists to listen to digitally except for the song um, Flower of Carnage. You can check out the Kill Bill soundtrack. There's, no, not the check out the Kill Bill uh, soundtrack. I mean, there's one song apparently that Mako Kaji sings as like part of the theme of this movie, "Flower of Carnage." I forget the uh, Japanese term, but uh, that's the, the only soundtrack. fucking song you can hear from this movie that's not like, which is such movie. a shame because I, and, and it's there's so much jazz and there's funk. like funky jazz, it's yeah, so and rad, like some dude. synth shit, and it's just so fucking good. It like it doesn't take away from the scene, but it's like this is an incredible new flavor in this scene that I thought I knew it was going to like how it was going to feel yeah. to see this happen. That's, it's so fun. that scene when Ryu Ray is writing the novel for the first time and they're playing like this incredible, like jazzy theme song. Basically I'm like, so that's me. That's what I think of myself when I'm really in the zone. writing. <laughs> it's like my highest aspiration is just like this. Could, like not only is not only am I killing it, but also writing is actually the coolest thing in the world <laughs> right now. I mean, like it's so beautiful. Like he's got that perfect calligraphy it's and they're playing like so this good. Jazz, and it's like holy shit that's my dream right there uh well that's been the junk drawer i'm going to close it with a quick sound effect and we're going to move on to our second and final segment uh good grief man give me a gift so there's a gift that goes out with each episode i want to know what y'all think should be that gift. uh cody any shots that stick out to you this time yeah uh, a couple and I, I will say i got really in my head this time around about uh, or just like overthinking depending on the file you got like if the subs were were hard coded or not like how that would affect a shot that you potentially chose i always always get sub clean versions you know so we're good 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 that's that's good to know going forward i'm going to commit that to memory uh but my two today uh shouldn't matter either way um the at around i think the 29th minute it's the the young kid version of uh, uh, of Yuki Kashima, um, like hitting flowers with a stick, and it's I can't remember. I think I think it's like kind of slowed down footage. Um, that one I don't know, just really stood out to me. I really like that one. And then uh, it, it was already mentioned the the first kill where um, 
that um, I'm forgetting his name. He's dragged to the beach and then he's killed. And then I think it, the camera crash zooms, but like all the way out and you see the crashing waves, um, the, um, the, the deeply uh, beautifully colored water. Uh, and I think that was around minute 49. Um, that's, and the, the, the shouting out again, the trial on, I think um, used, uh, they didn't cut the trailer, but I, I don't believe, but they used a trailer that had that as like a big, kind of high mark of it was like a three minute trailer for lady snowblood it kind of ruled um but uh yeah they picked a good one so that's yeah those bags that, that too was one of mine dying on the beach and then just the quick zoom out because it's like very fast i mean you just called the crash zoom but it looks incredible it's like the perfect waves somehow they orchestrated that shit um harry what did you have for good grief man give me gifts yeah i've got a couple um i really like the sequence where um lady snowblood and re-ray are looking at each other after re-ray's reveal that the main bad guy is his father and they are flashing between close-ups of their face and uh basically single shots from earlier in the movie right like we see uh lady snowblood's mom we see her killing um another one of her victims stuff like that and it, it just happens in really quick succession uh wordlessly between them i really really love that one um let's see uh there's a uh, in the final sequence when she's in the hotel and she's surrounded by guys that are getting ready to fight her, she has this pose she does with the sword. I think it's it's pretty iconic, but um, Meiko Kaji is making a face in that moment that is like just amazing. Uh, that would be a really good one. Um, and then uh, the absolutely hysterical uh, moment that I think we talked about, Jason, where um, she is facing off on the balcony with the final big bad and it cuts his face and then his son's face, Ryu Ray's face, and then for some reason the third shot is just doves that are sitting on a balcony, <laughs> and then it cuts again to her. But for some reason we just had to have doves in this like Mexican standoff between them. Um, and then finally uh, the one where uh, Ryu Ray breaks that mirror uh, that that his dad was hiding behind, and his dad just has this moment where he just scrambles like an absolute idiot away from like the mirror that was shattered, character. and it's so anticlimactic and it's so funny. Um, so yeah, combination of really badass and really funny gifs for me this time. So Aaron, I don't know if you wa- you watch this remotely. Obviously, um, did you yeah. d- w- did you have that trouble with HBO where it like it counts down instead of counting up in the timestamps? Yeah, I, d- I did do the yeah. math for what it's Even worth. Oh, still does I that. I downloaded this film. Wonderful. Uh, well, I, I, oh, yeah. listener, you can find a link in the show notes to the Internet Archive version, by the way. It's Cha-ching. wonderful. Yes. Uh, although I had connection issues with the Internet Archive version. I don't know. I, I had uh, speed sounds issues. Like, with sounds the like a file, skill issue. Probably. Um, I'm going to say I, I kind of felt bad about suggesting this one. But given the fact that, uh, look, you're a bit hands off on my end. Uh, I would like you to spend an abnormally long period of time. Uh, cutting together a compilation uh, of Mako Kaji uh, just kind of staring and kind of squinting at her enemies oh, in a yeah. kind of angry manner. The, just to the, the, get like 30 Yeah, of the squint-a-palooza will, yeah. will happen. Just, uh, do not even, do not ever yeah. give my like hyper-focus problems like a vector because you will get oh, yeah. like a minute 30 of, You're gonna do from, it from a 40-minute interview of Jacques <laughs> Tati talking about his entire distant filmography there's like a minute 30 of just him licking his lips and breathing in that video exists on our Twitter. Check it out. It took me like four hours. You could do, it would be, it could be the, uh, the sort of sequel to the Tatsuya Nakadai. What was it? A that fan, was a fan cam. Made for Aaron did fan help me with that. Yeah, that was, was pretty the good choice. He's better with, yeah. uh, with yeah. the current music. Yeah. Um, yeah, not bad. Not a bad We're idea. always saying not that. Idea. Uh, is that the only recommendation you had to Aaron? 
Well, there there would be like thirty separate shots in there. So yes, okay. I think that's a good summation <laughs> of this film in in GIF it format. It still only counts as one. <laughs> Uh, I was going to say um, uh, the death on the beach uh, that Cody brought up. I was going to say there's a shot where uh, Sayo, which is Yuki's mom, she just like lays there dead as um, Yuki is sort of like crying and whining next to her in the prison. Really beautiful. Uh, there's a wonderful shot of snow falling right outside the prison bars before it zooms in that you could probably pretty easily infinite loop. Uh, but I wish it could like cleanly go between the white and the red. That's the only reason that I that I would not make that is if I can't make that happen. But um, yeah. hey, what about uh, what about when he puts little Yuki in the barrel and then rolls her down the hill and you can <laughs> see her ponytail like flying in circles as she falls down? Trixie that Kong. One of my picks. One of my picks was almost going to be specifically the moment when she shoots out yes. of the barrel. Man, that Donkey got Kong uh, barrel blast. Oh, uh, thank you, yeah, thank you, too. buddy. He's he's gone. Um, that was that was that was genuinely wonderful. How like physics just stop existing and she shoots horizontally out of the, out of the barrel. Oh, good stuff, good stuff. I'm putting that one down. Uh, barrel blast gif. Uh, thanks guys for giving me some gifts. We have one final segment that our show comprises. You can check it out in a few seconds here. After Harry helps me ring it in gleefully as he always does. Thank you, Jason. It's the segment we like to call <gasps> Cody's, Cody's Noties. Noties. Wow. Gentlemen, thank you so much for that vengeful introduction. This week, we'll be dipping our toes back into the waters of Try Love Feud. Um, Lady Snowblood, uh, the film that we just got done talking about, had its release in the year 1973. So naturally, today's theme will be the most popular movies on Letterboxd that were released in the 1970s. I will now mention that Trivia Mafia rules are in effect for the rest of this uh, this segment, this whole episode, this whole ding-dong episode, which means you must use your noodles and not your Googles or your letterboxes to find the answers you seek. Um, the usual spiel is what follows. Um, so if you're familiar with this already, dear listener, feel free to scrub ahead about like 90 seconds or so. Uh, but for those listening at home who are unaware, this will be an experience somewhat adapted from the famous game show Family Feud. What I've done is uh, I've collected the top 25 films on Letterbox, ranked by popularity and filtered by release in the decade of the 1970s. What I will do is ask each of you fellas one at a time for a guess of a movie included in the list. Uh, and then every guest will come with a 10 second window to get a point. You'll need to correctly guess a movie that is on that list during your turn within that 10 second window. There are going to be three strikes per person. And if you get three strikes, then you're out for the remainder of the game. Uh, if you make an incorrect guess, so you guess a movie that's not on the list, then you'll get a strike. If you have a correct movie, but state an incomplete title of the movie, um, uh, Scott Pilgrim versus Scott, Pil uh, Scott Pilgrim as opposed to Scott Pilgrim versus the world situation, you'll get a strike. If you fail to guess a movie before the 10 second window is up, I will announce that time is up and you'll get a strike. I would just always recommend guessing a movie, even if it's wrong. It makes for good content. Uh, hashtag content. Uh, the order for this game is going to be Harry, and then Aaron, and then Jason going on a loop for as long as we need to. Uh, whenever it's the next person's turn, I will say that person is on the clock, at which point that person will be on the clock. Uh, the film we discussed today is not on this list. So if you guess it, we'll all know you weren't listening to this preamble. Uh, the winner will be the person with the most correctly guessed movies. I think that covers it, but are there any questions before we get started? Everybody's looking extremely confident. Oh, yeah, so good man. to go. I'm going I'm to run this. Yeah, most of us, uh, fun fact, most of us here uh, weren't alive during the 70s. So this will be, be something to behold, but we'll get into it. I got my big, 
master game board up here. Uh, game board, ooh, almost uh, gamer adjacent content. Um, this is kind of a game that we're playing, but uh, one gamer in the bunch. My segues are so bad today. Harry uh, is up first. Uh, Harry, you are officially for the first time today of anybody on the clock. Um, I'm going to go with Star Wars or Star Wars Episode for A New Hope as my first guess. Gotcha. Star Wars. Using the new, a new hope subtitle. Sorry, I didn't know. I, Real ones you know. just go Star Wars, and then well, we I, I wanted to make sure I doesn't that's... take that. All right, We've, I beat him to death if he doesn't take just Star Wars. That the Star Wars 1977 is the guess, and the way I said it is the way that Letterboxd uh, characterizes it. It is number three on the list, so that is one point for Harry. Uh, again, it was Star Wars 1977. That's how. That's how they dolled that up. So, correct guess. Um, no strike earned by Harry, but instead a point was earned. Uh, and Harry takes a commanding lead. Um, but he's also the only one who's guessed. So let's get some more guesses in here. Uh, pivoting to Aaron. You are up next, and you are now on the clock. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back. Star Wars Episode Which I think f- was released in the 70s. Star Wars Episode Five is the guess. Unfortunately, that is not on the list. Came out in the eighties, bud. I think it was eighty-one. Four 81 years later, right. something like that. What were they? They clearly didn't have an efficient production pipeline. Let me tell you, the Disney no, they of didn't. today would would never. <laughs> that is a good point. I think yeah. in many ways, the Disney of today would not have made <laughs> Empire Strikes Back. Mm, yeah, a lot of fun levels and layers to that sentiment. Uh, feel free to peel those back while we pivot to Jason for his first guest of the game. That is, by the way, Aaron's first strike earned. Um, Jason, however, it is your floor. You are on the clock. Going to go The Godfather. The Godfather is Jason's guess. And at number one on the list, uh, Jason gets really? the point. The Godfather. Damn. 1972. Yeah, number one on the list. Um, half of those people are just saying they watched The Godfather. They haven't actually seen it. They're just trying to. They should. Know. It's very good. It it's is hot take. <laughs> one of one of the best. Some might say. Um, Sorry, I guess I'd probably say that? that too. It's been 1972. Okay, buddy, you got to go through me first. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, you. speak of the devil. Harry's uh, up next and is on the clock. Uh, thank you, Cody. I'm going to go with The Godfather Part Two. Uh, the Godfather Part Two, which famously came out uh, in the year two thousand five, is Harry's get. Yeah, uh, yeah, Godfather yeah. Part Two, nineteen seventy four. That is on the list. It is number seven. That is another point for Harry. Um, that's the only little clue y'all are going to get from me. Uh, the rest of this game, or no, by knowing the Godfather came out in nineteen seventy two, that just leans uh, lays the groundwork for every movie that came out um, since then. So I'm, I'm expecting us to clean the board here, uh, starting next with you, Aaron, uh, for your second guess. You're on the clock. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Jaws. Aaron is going with Jaws. Uh, and at number six on the list, that gets him a point. And nice. I was just about to say the release year again, but I'm, I decided I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'll say them at the end. That'll be a, a fun little prize for Was that 75, Cody? Can we guess the uh, release here? Uh, moving on to Jason uh, for his next guess. You. Jason, you are on the clock. I'm going to guess Halloween. Halloween is the guess, and Halloween is on the list at number nine. So we're, we're really... I believe that was 79. The, yeah. I'm not... You don't need to confirm or deny. I believe it was 79. I'm, I'm just going to keep... Uh, I'm going to keep giving you all the, the Midwestern shrug, uh, or... 
Yeah, we'll call it the Midwestern Shrug. I was about to say the Jim Halpert Shrug, but he hasn't monopolized shrugs to that extent quite yet. Uh, quite yet. We'll see. Um, the, the quick look at the scoreboard. It is as follows. Harry and Jason are both two for two in their guesses. Aaron is one for two. Uh, so he's got one point and Aaron, therefore, is the only person with a strike. So very much any, anybody's game. Still a lot of movies unclaimed on the board. So let's see if we can get more of those off of the board and into your pocketbooks. People don't use those anymore. Harry, it is your guess. Uh, you're on the clock. Man, this is a weird guess. I guess I'm going to go with Full Metal Jacket. Full Metal Jacket is the guess, and Full Metal Jacket I'm not seeing, so that is unfortunately a strike for Harry. Um, I think popularity-wise, a uh, pretty pretty good guess if it missed, uh, unless, I don't know, I'm I'm forgetting release year, so maybe that played into it. I genuinely can't remember when that movie came out, um, so I'm not, I'm not hiding anything from y'all, but that is Harry's first strike. We pivot to the only other person in this game so far with a strike, who is named Aaron Z. Grossman. That name yeah. is mostly correct. Aaron, you're on the clock. Thanks. I'm going to go with Taxi Driver. Aaron is going with Taxi Driver, and that is the number two movie on this list. So really? that is, yeah, that is a point. With that correct guess, Aaron ties it up. Everybody's got two, twos. It's twos across the board. Everybody's got two points apiece. Um, Jason has the opportunity to take the lead here with this next guess. Jason, you are on the clock. I'm going to say The French Connection. The French Connection is the guess and the french connection which i believe just got added to the the criterion channel um so so a a cool win there not a win here because that's unfortunately not on the list so that is jason's first strike we are dead even across the board Uh, everybody's got one strike everybody's got two points everybody is sweating mad bullets just like everybody did in the 70s especially uh the white dudes um in a lot of these movies but we're headed back to the top of the queue where we've got Harry waiting to guess. And so Harry, the floor is yours. You're on the clock. I'm even less confident about this one, but I figure I've got one strike left after this. I'm going to go with apocalypse. Now apocalypse. Now is the guess apocalypse. Now is number eight on the list. So that is a point for Harry. We are just making mincemeat of the, the top 10. Almost all of those are, are claimed up. I don't think we've guessed uh, a movie. We, I don't think y'all have guessed a movie below Number nine. So that's maybe that's we don't know that many seventies movies, Cody. <laughs> <laughs> you do too. Maybe we'll see. Um, I'm not going to put the cart before the horses. They famously did all the time in the seventies, and that's why we're here. Hey, Aaron, uh, you're on the clock. What year did the conversation come out? Fuck you. Is that on the list? Can you tell me if that's I know on what the year list? that came out? I don't know if it's on the list. That is my guess. The guess so. from from Aaron is the conversation. The conversation, unfortunately, is not oh, thank on God. this list. That is strike number two for Mr. Grossman. Uh, we'll head along to uh, Jason Daphnis for your next guess. You are on the clock. I'm going to guess real letterbox brain, Hausu. Hausu That's is, the craziest thing. You, I don't know, I man. Mean, Top 20 know, letterbox? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Houseu, aka House, slots in at number twenty-two on this list. That is a point Jesus for Christ. Jason. <sighs> the Trilon influence playing factoring into this, no doubt. Heavily, uh, heavily My indeed. One remaining guess of Annie Hall is not looking like it's <laughs> going to be on this list. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, as uh, as Bob Parr said in two thousand four's The Incredibles, we'll get there when we get there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and right now we're at Harry uh, for his next guess. Harry, you are on the clock. 
I'm going to go even wilder than Halsu. I'm going to go with The Long Goodbye. Ooh. The Long Goodbye is the guess. The Long Goodbye, unfortunately, Say is goodbye not on the one. list. Yeah. That is that is two strikes for Harry, one strike remaining. Speaking of two strikes, uh, we've got Aaron Grossman, who's on on his last strike. Uh, so he needs he needs to clinch this to stay active in the game. Aaron, you are on the clock. Uh, I'm going to guess Doctor Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Doctor Strangelove, etc., uh, etc. Et is I almost, guess. Yeah. Doctor Strangelove, unfortunately, did not uh, make that movie. I can't remember the release uh, year for that. Either. I wanted, yeah. I remember yeah. the release year of The Shining and was like, I need to guess films that came out previous to that one. Hmm. Yeah. Hey, uh, fair point. Just uh, went, went a little too far, pulled. You know, maybe pulled a few muscles on that stretch, but you wrapped up your your uh, inclusion in this game with two points. Fine effort all around. Some good guesses. We've got two fellas still active in the game. The next fella in the queue is Jason, who's got three points uh, and only one strike to his name. We'll see what happens with this next guest. Speaking of which, Jason, you are on the clock. Yeah. I thought Hausu was going to be a reach. The Sting is my guess. The Sting is the That's guess. That's m- much less of a reach than Halsu. You, you think? Okay. You say that, but the Sting did not make Fuck. this list. So that is a, se- a second strike for Jason. We are now at a point where, just to, summing it up here, Harry and Jason both have two strikes to their name. They each also have three points. So they are tied for the lead. God damn. Go you know, back and forth. Uh, whoever guesses wrong first will we'll be out, and then we'll just maybe have a fun, like, bragging rights session where y'all throw out names before I list them all out. But who knows? This can maybe go on for another couple hours. We'll see. Uh, but well, Harry, you can you can make that happen either way with this next guest. You are on the clock. I'm not going to think too hard about it because I'm really afraid. I'm just going to go with The Exorcist. The Exorcist is the guess. The Exorcist clocks in at number 11 on the list. That is a point for Harry. Number 11 on the list, The Exorcist. Uh, and so that's the way Harry's up to four. Jason is at three, but it is his turn. Uh, and again, dear listener, in case you've forgotten from 30 seconds ago, uh, we need correct guesses from here on out to, to keep these folks in the game. All, all, all freebie strikes are, are off the table. So, uh, Jason, back to you. You are now on the clock. Putting all my chips on Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is the guess. Regrettably, did not make the cut. Not on the list. That is Jason's Bush Cassidy in the film released in 1969. Unfortunately, really? yeah, that's yeah. yeah, yeah just said it up a minute ago because I'm out. Yeah, yeah. Um, are there so uh, proper shout outs to Harry and he'll get his uh, his pop his pop off platform uh, in a, in a few beats here. Um, <laughs> wait, wait, are there wait, any wait, other? Wait, wait. We can't. Judge. Wait, does he not have to get one? How many points? No, he's he's at four. He's oh, at four, I okay. and I died at three. Uh, I just want—I yeah. don't want—I don't want to sweep pop under the rug. That's—that's that's really good. Good, good work with pop. Oh well, thank you. Um, and hey, for I guess kind of like leading up to the pop, are there any other titles you want to throw out as ones that you were going to guess, or ones that you just want to throw uh, out? The ones that maybe stretches just so that they can be on the record before we actually list off the correct answers. I was going to try Raging Bull next. Mm-hmm. I believe that's nineteen eighty. Uh, oh, is it? What, Damn. Was The okay. Shining 80, 81? 
That's also 1980. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Andy was 80. Kubrick, so I, I just looked this up, but uh, Barry Lyndon, probably not on the list, but Clockwork Orange, probably on the list. Oh, man. Clockwork uh, Orange. When did Last Picture Show come out? Mm, that was... Probably not on the list. Oh, I thought that was 70s. I, I could be wrong. I'm, I'm blanking But it's out. not on the list. Uh, I... Uh, I won't make any any declarations either way until I All read right. the list. But are there any others that you wanna you wanna toss out? I know it's not on here. Wake and fright. That's like not even top hundred. I'm sure. What do you say? That's number five Whoa. on the list. No, no, of course not. Um, <laughs> Friday the Thirteenth. Did we guess that one? Mm, you didn't. Mm, shit. Uh, you did not guess that one. Try that. Okay. All right. Uh, I think that, I think I'm tapped. All right. Nashville. No, I'm tapped. <laughs> Uh, it, going uh, down and then up. So from twenty-five on up, uh, these are the top twenty-five films. This is going to be so painful. <laughs> released in the nineteen seventies, ga- uh, gauged by Letterbox logged popularity. Uh, and I'm going to rattle through the. There are some long titles in the mix. Uh, we have, at 1971's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, number twenty-four, nineteen seventy-five's Barry Lyndon. Number 23, 1975's uh, Dog Day Afternoon. Number 22, 1977's House, a.k.a. Houseu. Uh, number 21, 1974's Chinatown. Uh, number 20, 1979's Stalker. Number 19, uh, 1975's Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Number 18, uh, 1978's Grease. Number 17, 1977's Eraserhead. Shit. Number 16, yeah, number 16, 1976's Rocky. Number 15, 1975's The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Number 14, 1976's Carrie. Number, a previous episode, by the way. Number 13, 1977's Suspiria. Number 12, 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Number 11, 1973's The Exorcist. Number 10, uh, we're getting down to one of our last highest ranked, uh, few unclaimed titles, but uh, number 10 is 1975's One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. Number nine, catching my breath. Number nine, 1978's Halloween. Number eight, 1979's Apocalypse Now. Number seven, 1974's The Godfather Part Two. Number six, 1975's Jaws. Number five, a previous episode, 1979's Alien. Fuck. Number four, 1971's A Clockwork Orange. And then the rest of these you know. Number three, 1977's Star Wars. Number two, 1976's Taxi Driver. And number one, 1972's Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather. I didn't need to attribute Francis Ford Coppola, but, you know. I kind of hate letterbox users. <laughs> Every time <laughs> I hear this, films, say this. <laughs> That's better than, like, it is a lot the better, other lists. The 1970s yeah, that, is the best, it's the best decade for film. Well, that's making, what fucking, so. ruined, I remember we yeah. said so many times that, like, on our Alien episode and around our Alien episode, that, like, this is a movie that, like. Anyhow, just missed the cut. Uh, I'm sorry. 26. Uh yeah, like twenty six. Yeah, nobody, I think, nobody I think literally twenty six. To logging it, <laughs> every everybody who's watching, it's like no, nope, not logging that bad boy on the old leather box. <laughs> logging it up here in the metal <laughs> yep. palace, leaving that one out. Yes, it is. Uh, going through this, um, I don't like. It reminded me how many or like which particular years were um specifically like unhinged, like nineteen seventy five. One flew of the cuckoo's nest. Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, Monty Python, Dog Day Afternoon, Barry Lyndon, and the 1978's top entry on the list is at number 18, Greece. Just I don't know. You you take what you can get. I get. Uh, I yeah, guess. I, but um, yeah. What sorry? What year was Greece? 1978. That's a that's a 1980s movie. We just round that one up. That is not. Yeah, a, I, I think. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not cool enough to be from the 70s. 
Yeah, you yeah. have to like just put it in the eighties. It's like, yeah, Reagan was in office. Fuck it, I don't care. I, <laughs> uh, I, 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 I do care. Um, that's that's. It's like nineteen sixty nine music. It's like it's a nineteen seventy album. It's fine. I don't, I don't like. King I don't like that movie very much. You're not a big fan of Grease. Um, thank you so much, Cody, though, for making our episodes and on always such a lively note. Uh, we got we gave Harry his pop off platform. I hope he got it all out of his system because that was. That was the one that I should have done best at. Honestly, I, I, I have prided myself on like liking seventies movies enough and knowing them enough that I should have gotten that. I I'll, I'll steal it back from you someday. Um, Aaron, you're not in the conversation. You've forgotten entirely. Uh, I will direct people, uh, once again to, um, finding out. A- wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, I just want to say that that was like Jason's pop-off platform just now. Uh, he lost at the thing. Yeah, yeah. And then he I was mean, like, yeah, but I'm still claiming, I'm going to still go ahead and claim to be wins. the 1970s movie guy, even though I just demonstrably was not. I'm Jason Daphnis. <laughs> you found my bit entirely. Uh, I, I, go to Trilove uh, podcast to find us, uh, find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema. I will direct you, dear listener, to the show notes where I've linked the Sound and Fury of Lady Snowblood by Matthew Chepikova Trayon, a lecturer at the University of Minnesota on Perisphere, the Trilon blog. It's a great piece that connects the story of Lady Snowblood to the politics of the time to the hyperviolence. It's a, just a pretty well-rounded piece on the blog. Uh, it's associated with the Trilon. Check that piece out, show notes, and perisphere.org. It's a cool place to check out once in a while. Uh, maybe pitch them if you want to write about a movie that's going to be playing there. Check it in with it. Uh, and check out trilon.org for showings and membership info and all oh, a bunch of cool ways to get involved with Trilon and uh, and upcoming programming schedules as well, including this month's uh, main, or I guess one of two main programs going on, A Dish Best Served Cold, and then All Hail Parker Posey also going on in June. Get a ticket to a movie. Talk to us there if you see us. Talk to us on Twitter if you find us there at Trilove Podcast. My name is Jason Daphnis. Once more, you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I've been Harry Mackin. You can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Uh, my name's Aaron. Find me on Twitter at RBPlease. People say you can't wash away the mud of this world with pure white snow. You need Asura snow, stained fiery red. <laughs>
Thank、you